Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight, and our topic is Living the Tabernacle. And I anticipate that we'll probably do more than one uh, session on this. So this is Living the Tabernacle Part 1. And uh, really, I guess what I want to talk about to set this up a little bit is um, just how astonishing the idea is that what is divine could ever be connected with what is human. It's kind of an astonishing idea. I mean, I, I was trying to think of analogies and I really couldn't think of anything, even if you think of something really stupid like um, I want to get the entirety of New York City, all the five boroughs, and I need to fit it in a business envelope. Um, you know, you, you can't do it. It's, it's too big. You'll never get all five boroughs into a business envelope. The divine is arguably even larger than New York City. And the human is just a small little vessel. You know, how do you get, you see what I mean? How would the divine and the human ever come together? How could they ever be connected? And they need to not just come together. Another foolish analogy I was thinking of was like imagine like an 18-wheeler truck where you have the tractor and the trailer, you know. And uh, so somebody who's new to the job decides to just attack, attach the trailer to the tractor just by using a nail, you know, just, just nail it on there. So, well, that's not strong enough. You know, that'll never hold. When you see these couplings that they have for the tractor trailers, it's a very intense process and it takes quite a bit of time. And you back up, you get what's called the fifth wheel and it's ready to go over the kingpin and then the thing locks in. You have to, you know, several stages to getting that right. Then you connect the air hoses, you connect the, you know, the, um, the electrical and, and all that stuff. It's a long process because you're attaching a huge amount of weight and, and it needs to be firmly attached but be able to swing back and forth and everything. So if it's a huge job, I mean, if you look for these videos online about how to attract, attach a tractor and trailer, you know, it, it takes quite a while to describe what that process is, even in the efficiency of video. Uh, those are just two things that are you know, approximately the same size and they're absolutely made to go together. How are you going to attach the divine? How are you going to attach infinity to humanness, to, to something finite and something small? And why is this a relevant question? Well, only for three reasons that I can think of. Can I think of three? Uh, one reason is that our belief in, of who God is, is that God is both divine and human. That in Jesus, God and human became one. So it's a big deal for Christianity. It's a big deal for Jesus, how those two came together. But it's also a big deal for us because for us to become angels, that same sort of coupling process has to happen in some way or another. You have to somehow get us attached to something divine, even though we're finite and human and uh, many days uh, sort of pathetic, aren't we? I don't know. Like, how are you going to attach that to something divine? So that's an important question for us. And this is really what all the heavens hinge on. You know, the heavens are all the people who have gone through that process and are attached to the Lord. So uh, there's, there's reasons why we want to look at this. And what I'm arguing tonight is that the tabernacle is a picture of how this connection takes place. And I hope to articulate just a little bit of uh, how that is an attachment and what that means for us. How would we 
live the tabernacle. Another thing I just want to tack on at the end of this intro here is that the idea of living scripture, the idea, um, uh, the, the word is something that we need to live by. Uh, that's the whole idea of scripture. It's not just there to give you sort of inert information or something. It's something that's supposed to be deployed in our lives. How on earth? There are many, many chapters in the Old Testament devoted to the tabernacle. How are we supposed to live that? What are you, so you put this, am I supposed to build a tabernacle? You know, am I supposed to, are we supposed to make a model of it in our backyard? You know, how do you live by all that teaching? It starts in about Exodus chapter 25 or something like that. And then it goes through 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40. You know, it, there's, there's a big chunk of scripture there are 311 references of the tabernacle in the Old and New Testaments. It's a big deal. You know, the tabernacle is a big deal. What is all that doing there? And is there any sort of lesson that we can extract from that image? So if you'd wish to join me on that journey, you are most welcome. And let's open with a prayer. Shall we, good friends? So nice to be with you. I miss you horribly when we're <laughs> apart from one another. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth, both divine and human at once. Please reveal to us, Lord, in your holy name, how it is that you achieved that union. How did you become both divine and human at once? Thank you for gathering us in your name. Thank you for opening up the word to us. You are the word made flesh. Amen. Thank you, good friends. Very good to be with you. Sending love to those of you who are out online and getting the audio and on the phone, loved ones near and far. I want to let you know that we'll have, as we often do on the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, we'll be skipping class in the interest of people making all those good food. You know, like you can't compete with that. So, um, so we'll have no class uh, on, on Wednesday night, uh, the 23rd. Uh, but here we go with Living the Tabernacle. Mm. Okay, first of all, I want to start again, have we started again, uh, with uh, a little defense of the Old Testament. See, there's some people in Christianity who figure that when the Lord came into the world and he revealed all this wonderful material that we have in the New Testament, you really don't need the Old Testament anymore. Why, you know, so we're going to be talking tonight and probably next time we get together about the tabernacle why waste all that time thinking about the Old Testament? What on earth is the value of the Old Testament when you have the new? And there's uh, rumors going around Christianity that when Jesus was in the world in the New Testament, he kind of changed, thing, changed the game a little bit. And so you really don't need to know about all that stuff in the Old Testament. Well, here's just a defense of the Old Testament. Some brief thoughts that came to me the other day about it. First of all, Okay, let's say, yes, you could physically just chop it out of your book. You can buy just things that are just the New Testament. Uh, you know, you could get rid of Genesis through Malachi. Uh, but if you think the Old Testament is not important, but the New Testament is important, what do you make of the fact that Matthew starts right away quoting the Old Testament. In fact, it seems to be one of the primary goals of the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament to demonstrate how Jesus' life was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
How about the Gospel of Mark? Same deal. How about Luke? Same deal. How about John? Same deal. What about the Acts? Well, think about Peter's speech at the day of Pentecost. He's just quoting all about the Old Testament, how all these scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus. What about Stephen's martyrdom and how he's quoting all, he goes through the whole history of the children of Israel and is arguing that this is what was leading up to the Lord. What about Paul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews? He was a Pharisee. He knew that scripture so well. And you can tell from reading his epistles that these passages from the Old Testament were so deeply sown inside him. You know, who knows how much time he spent contemplating that one verse that says that uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul comes back to this again and again and again and again. It's full of it. And then you look at the epistle to the Hebrews, which is all about writing to Jewish people using the Old Testament as an argument that the, all of this was leading into the New Testament. You know what I mean? The epistles of Peter, of, of John, Jew, you know, all of them are quoting scripture and the book of Revelation, basically the recipe for the good of, book of Revelation is take the Old Testament prophets, pour them in a blender, frap them on low for just 15 seconds, and there you've got the book of Revelation. You know, you don't even do it. Don't do it for 30 seconds. It'll be overblended. It's the whole thing is just the Old Testament prophets. Every single verse, if you look at a Bible that has references in it, the Old Testament is inescapable. Those are all weak arguments compared to what I think is the strongest argument, which is that in John 1.14, it says that Jesus is the word made flesh. Well, what is that word? At the time that he came into this world, the word was the Old Testament. He was the Old Testament made flesh. You can't have Christianity without the Old Testament. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to his disciples and explains how everything in Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets was all about him. And that's after he was resurrected. That was still the game plan. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The whole thing was about him. So it's kind of a misunderstanding to me, the idea that you could get rid of the Old Testament. Don't worry about the Old Testament or something. Wow, Jesus was the Old Testament in the flesh. That, that's who he was. You can't get the Old Testament out of Christianity. So those are my arguments about the Old Testament. So now let's look at the Old Testament and see whether we can see something of the Lord in there and something for our own lives. Let's, uh, let's read some about this glorious tabernacle. Let's just go to Exodus chapter 25. Mm. See, Moses has been leading the people and taking them out of the land of Israel. And they've come to Mount Sinai. And by this point, he's already been given the Ten Commandments. They were given in chapter 20 there. And one little point I want to make about the Ten Commandments is that... God took two tablets of stone and wrote them with his own finger, I think it says, you know, wrote the Ten Commandments on those two tablets of stone. And while Moses was up on the mountain, uh, he, the Lord says this to him in, in 25 there. Verse. Verse 1. Why don't we just start there? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Yes. 
Okay, now this is interesting beginning. You don't know that you're going to be talking about the tabernacle yet, but it's interesting that the absolutely first thing said is that this is a free will offering. This tabernacle is going to be made out of stuff that the people just willingly come forward and hand over. What sort of stuff are we talking about? And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, mm. and bronze. Okay, those are, uh, yeah, okay. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins, yes. mm -hmm. and acacia wood. Okay. Oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, how important is that verse 8 right there? That's mm -hmm. the purpose of the tabernacle, right? Mm. And it's interesting that it uses the term sanctuary. There's two sort of functions that I see already in what we're reading. One is that for the presence of the Lord, right? That he's going to be present in some way that I may dwell among them. So uh, we need to make this place for the Lord to be among us. But the other thing is a sanctuary. And when I think about a sanctuary, I think about a place of safety, don't you? Mm -hmm. Like a place, you know, of refuge or, or someplace that you could go if you're in danger or trouble or something like that, that you're going to be safe there. So the Lord's going to dwell there and it's going to be providing us with, uh, you know, protection. And look at verse 9 there. <clears throat> According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Okay, now he hasn't even described what that pattern is yet, but he's about, God is about to talk about the pattern or the shape of the tabernacle. And it <laughs> emphasizes several times, you see, what did it say? Did it say that he was going to tell him? At the beginning of verse 9, was according to all that I tell you about the pattern, what was the verb? Show you. Show. Show, don't tell. Show. Swedenborg says that Moses was actually shown a tabernacle that was in the spiritual world. He was, so this wasn't something that was just sort of theoretical, like, ah, make it approximately like this and put one of those in, what, however you want to do it. No, he was seeing the thing. He could see it after the pattern that he was shown. It doesn't say here that it was in heaven. It is, if I have my uh, scripture right here, he is physically up on a mountain. Yes, I believe in the previous chapter, verse 13, Moses went up on the mountain of God. Uh, he's on a mountain and he's visiting with God and being shown what the tabernacle looks like. And Swedenborg says that he was seeing um, this in the spiritual world. A cool little point of which you may or may not be aware, good friends, is that when Swedenborg had his spiritual experiences, he traveled on one occasion. This is written up in his book, Marriage Love or Conjugal Love, number 75, where he traveled to the most ancient heaven. So he got, these were the earliest people on the planet, way, way before Old Testament times. You know, this, this is way, way back in the golden age. And he went to visit them and they were all living in tents. And he saw this great light at the center of their community. And he asked what that light was from. And they said it was from their tabernacle. And he went and looked at it. And he said it was exactly like the tabernacle that was described in the Old Testament. So that model, was it that same tabernacle 
that Moses saw. In other words, it was a structure that already existed in heaven but didn't exist on earth yet. The pattern of it. It's, I, I find that very, very intriguing. All right, and then we get some objects that are going to be made here. Let's just read a little bit of this fun. I mean, this goes on for years in the Old Testament, but let's, <laughs> let's look at this. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. So the first thing mentioned is this ark. Okay, and why don't I get out my little graphic now for those of you who get the visuals? And very wonky visuals they are tonight. <laughs> Believe me, the people who actually constructed the tabernacle did a better job than I did of drawing a straight line here. But the, um, the, for those of you who are just getting the audio, there's, the court, there's a big courtyard, and then within it there's a rectangular building, and it, it's sort of divided into one-third at the top, which is the Holy of Holies, and two-thirds at the bottom, which is the Holy Place. Uh, or the Holy of Holies is the old language. Most Holy Place is another thing it's called. And the only thing in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant and what's called the mercy seat that sat on top of it, these golden cherubs, these angel guardians that were on top of it. And the Ten Commandments were kept in that holiest place. And then out in the holy place, outside of it, there was a veil in between those two. And you had three things. You had an altar of incense. You had a table of showbread that had actual bread on it. And you had a lampstand with seven lamps, olive oil. So we just read that you had to have oil for the light. Said it was oil that's burning there in the lampstand. And so this lit up this area. And then outside you had an altar for burnt offerings and a laver where the priests would wash their hands and wash their feet. It had two layers to it. And this is basically the, the, the furniture. I don't know if I have everything in perfectly in the right place. And there are different models that you'll see that people make of where does it go? Does it go here or there? But, but that's the furniture that we're talking about in the tabernacle. And so what we're talking about now, it, it's interesting that after talking about the free will offering, it goes right to the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant that's going to hold the Ten Commandments. All right, let's have a look at this. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Okay, and a cubit, a cubit is like a foot and a half. It's like the length of your forearm kind of thing. Go on. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside mm. and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. Yes, so this thing is pure, pure gold inside, outside. It has a molding around it, even though it's made of acacia wood. But, you know, it's, it's completely covered with gold, both inside and out. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And some of you know, don't you very well, good friends, why there were rings on it. There were rings on it because this was a portable temple. And so this thing was ready to go. So you would set this thing up wherever and then you'd tear it down, move it somewhere else, set it up again. So built right into it, was the mechanism for being able to transport it. And those rings were part of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Mm. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. Okay. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from uh, it. Interesting that you don't take the pole. You would think when you get there, just pull the poles out, stow them somewhere. You know, you don't want those stupid poles sticking out of there. But no, they did want those stupid poles sticking out of there. The, 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 that, it was always ready to go, you know. Go on. 
and you shall put into the ark of and sorry and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you the testimony is a way of expressing the 10 commandments the 10 commandments that God had written on two tables of stone that God had hewn and written them with his finger okay and then here's the other part of the so that's the ark and then on top of it you have this other part you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold mm. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. So that's the same size as the, you know, sort of footprint of the ark. Mm -hmm. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. These are winged angel guardians. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. Yes, okay. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. That's right. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And very important next verse. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment, well, sorry, which I mm -hmm. will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. That's right. Yes, so again, we've had twice already, haven't we, that I may dwell among the people, it's a sanctuary, and I'll meet with you and commune with you there and, and you know, communicate, give commands and so on from that spot. So this is the most holy thing in their, in their world. Go on. You shall also make a table of, of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. Same sort of deal. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. Uh -huh. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, okay. and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. Okay. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. Uh -huh. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and, it, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Yes, so there will be bread. The whole point there is that there will be bread on this table always before the Lord. Yes, and one other piece of furniture here it describes. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. So you've probably seen that image, haven't you, friends? Of the, you know, it's got a central thing and then the three come out on either side. Uh-huh. 
On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there should be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same. So these are vertical, if you see you know, mm -hmm. what it's talking about. Under each pair of branches, you have a, a bowl. Mm -hmm. According to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Mm. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. Mm. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. I believe a talent of pure gold was about 75 pounds of gold. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Yes, past tense, was shown you. So this is something he's already seen. And say, make sure you make it look like the thing that I already showed you. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, it's, it's very clear to tell how we should live by that. that that's, I don't have to discuss that at all, I'm sure. Um, but let's go. Look. No, I do want to get back to that at some point. But I want to read some other passages about the tabernacle. So all that was described there was the ark, the table of showbread, and the lampstand. But there are these other pieces of furniture in there. And we'll hear about the veil. We're not going to hear about it tonight. But there are two veils, one veil between here and here, and another one between here and here. So three grand areas in the tabernacle. And um, I want to read at this time some other passages that relate to the tabernacle. Would that be good? Let's just read some other things. Go to Exodus 29, verse 43. 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. Yes, there's going to be a lamb offering in the morning and in the, in the evening, and it'll be a continual offering right outside this door, which is this veil. Uh, it's out in the court. It's not in the holy place, but it's right outside here. And that lamb gets uh, sacrificed there. And that's where the Lord will meet us and speak to us there. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Yes. And look at verse 45. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons, to minister to me as priests. Oh. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Go on. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Yes, so this whole thing is about the Lord dwelling with us. That's, that's very clear. But how, what, what, what do we need to do or what, what is that? What is that? correspond to or represent. And uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 33 um, because there's something about the tabernacle that is reciprocal. Like when the tractor and the trailer hook up together, there's a part of the tractor that comes back and hooks onto a part of the trailer and then a part of the tractor latches onto that part of the trailer 
and then there are other parts that connect, you know, it, it, it has to be connected together reciprocally. Look at 33 verse uh, 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I, that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. There's a little hint there that, that certainly from what Moses is saying, that there, it's not just a building. There's a practice that goes with it. You know, show me your way. There's a way of life that goes with this. And then I love these next two verses. I don't know. Can't put it into words. But And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. There's another factor. There's sanctuary, peace and safety, also rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And what does Moses respond? Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. That's right. I like that. It, it's like You see what I mean about it? sort of a coupling? It's like... He's saying, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you. And he says, if not, forget it. You know, <laughs> the, the, the trailer says to the tractor, if you don't attach to me, I'm going nowhere. You know, so, so don't even bother. If your presence is not with us, don't, don't carry us up out of here. Um, good, good. And one of my favorite passages, those of you who have been around Bible study for a while know this is one of my faves, but I know I say that about everything all the time. So Exodus <laughs> chapter 40. And um, oh, this is just great. I did it the wrong way around on my chart. I can see that right here. Let's start at verse 30 because, you know, that'll show you that I was wrong. In Exodus chapter 40. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. Yes, so I should have had the altar down here and the laver in between mm. it and the, and the tent of meeting. And put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. That's right, hands and feet. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Yes, so there's, this is at the end of, you know, like, 16 plus chapters about how the tabernacle would be set up, what it was going to look like. So here we've got to the end of it. And what happens next? I just love this so much. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Mm, you see, that was the point of it was that now that it's all set up, now the glory of the Lord comes down and that cloud covers the tabernacle. And what happens as a result? I just love this. <laughs> And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So after all this, Moses just like, I can't even go in. <laughs> you know, he set the whole thing up, but he wasn't even able to go in there because the glory of the Lord was so powerful. Was this something Moses had done? You know, God came down and filled this thing so potently 
that Moses couldn't even go in there and deal with it. There's a parallel passage that is just coming to mind in, in uh, f- is it 1 Kings? It's 2 Kings, 1 Kings 8, right? Uh, similar thing when the temple was set up. Mm. Uh, it's just coming to mind, but I don't know where this happens. What I remember anyway was that, um, oh yeah, look at the, look at 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. Oh, 1 Kings 8. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I need for sorrow. This is, this is the temple, which the tabernacle was while they wandered in the wilderness, and then they set up the temple, and this is when the temple was dedicated, and look at 8, verses 10 and 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. There you go. So that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. See, that's cool, isn't it? The <laughs> priests can't even do their job because the place is so full of the power of God, you know. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Yes, that's right. I love that. So that, that happens repeatedly. You create, if you build it, he will come. You know, you, you build that place and then the power of God comes down. Not even Moses, who was a pretty decent individual. He's quite high, highly regarded. He couldn't even go in there, you know, let alone anybody else. It, it, it was too much. The, the power of God just filled the place. Uh, Look at Leviticus, if you can turn back again, with apologies. That's the third of the books of Moses. And look at Leviticus, just chapter 1, verse 1 there. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. Oh, I see. Isn't that nice? So, sure enough, as soon as that thing was set up, the Lord is communicating from there to Moses. Hey, here comes a message. So the Lord is communicating through the tabernacle. Wow. That would be great. Maybe we should set one up. Uh, Let's go to the middle of your Old Testament now and go to the Psalms. Because, okay, that's that's from the historical portion of the Old Testament. And there's a ton of description that we're skipping over there, just taking ridiculously little. But this also comes up in the prophets and the Psalms and in the New Testament in a number of different settings. And I just selected a few little... um, Verses on this subject, but let's read the whole of Psalm 15 in all its glory there. Mm. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? There's the question, right? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Then it answers the question. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. In his heart, speaks the truth in his heart. So tell me, say that in another way. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, Mm. in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So who may abide in your tabernacle? Isn't it obvious that how you live the tabernacle is that you have to lay aside evil and and live a good life? Isn't that clear from what it was describing? Even though that's in sort of correspondential language, some of it about putting your money out to usury, which is interest or things like that. But it's living a good life 
that's how you live in the, in the tabernacle. So that's good. Look at Psalm 27, if you will. Mm, Psalm 27, starting in verse 4. Mm. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, mm. to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Yes, go on. For in the time of trouble, He shall hide me in His pavilion. Uh-huh. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. Wow. Now, wait, wait, wait. Say that again. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. Wow. You know, when the tabernacle was set up, it was a very, very strict rules that if you were a lay person, you could come into the court, but only the priests could go into this holy place. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place. And that was only once a year with special offerings. And you had to sprinkle blood and fill the place with incense and it was a really big deal and it says explicitly in the text numerous times lest he die you know like uh, the, the, it was very dangerous to go into the most holy place and yet that said what that the lord would hide us in the secret place of his that that's a hiding place for us wow in the secret place of his tabernacle go on he shall set me high upon a rock and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. Mm. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Isn't that great? So that's wonderful. Look at Psalm 46. Again, you get this sense of the tabernacle being a place of safety. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 1. We've got to read verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Oh. Okay. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Yes, I like the language of the old King James, although it's less expressive. God shall help her and that right early. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So... This tabernacle, again, is the idea that the, the Lord will be in our midst. So it's very clearly a place of the presence of the Lord and protection, right? Look at Psalm 61, verses 3 and 4. Hmm. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. <clears throat> I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Yes, forever... <coughs> is sort of a life after deathy type of statement, isn't it? Like, I will dwell in your tabernacle forever, forever. Yeah, mm -hmm. isn't that about heaven? So doesn't the tabernacle mean heaven as well? That's an image of heaven. And I believe that's where Moses saw that model of it and so on up in heaven. Turn to the right and go to Isaiah, if you will. You go through a few books, Proverbs and so forth in between. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 4. Verse 
6. Oh, oh we got to read verse 5. Mm. <laughs> okay. It's too much. You can do that. Isaiah 4, verse 5. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion... And above her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Yes, this is in the future that Isaiah the prophet is predicting. In the future, there will be a cloud and a smoke which were over the tabernacle, if you know the story. For over all the glory, there will be a covering. Yes, very important statement. Over all the glory, there will be a covering. Very important, very important for what we're talking about tonight. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime yes. from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Yeah, so the tabernacle is a place of safety. Again, this is sort of a theme, isn't it? Isaiah 16, I just love, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I love the Bible. I really like this book. And it's uh, the way that you can pick an image like the tabernacle and see it through these, you know, it is kind of telling us what the tabernacle is about, isn't it? It's just great. 16, verse 5. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Righteousness and truth, sitting on it in truth in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle has something to do with truth. And another precious passage to me is 33 verse 20. Okay. This is a future vision in look, which, yes, oh, go ahead. Okay. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home. And what's it like? A tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed nor will any of its cords be broken. Again, the sense of eternity in this tabernacle, that the tabernacle will be set up and never torn down. The, and, and by this point in Isaiah, the physical tabernacle was already long, long gone and been replaced with a temple. I think by this point it had already been replaced with a second temple or whatever. Anyway, there, there's, you know, but here's a vision of the future tabernacle. Turn to the right and go through Jeremiah to Ezekiel, if you would, good friends. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37, pick up a verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Very important. And this is, in, again, a future forecast of the Old Testament prophets that this is what it's going to be like. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and mm. it shall be an everlasting covenant with mm. them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Mm. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's that reciprocal sense again. I will be their God, they will be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Yeah, that's right. Just a very beautiful vision of 
of this tabernacle being everlasting. Now, can you go to the New Testament, good friends? Are there things like this in the New Testament? Let's go to... Um, I don't know if, you know, you got the four Gospels at the far end. You've got the book of Revelation. About halfway between those two, you have the book of Hebrews, which is fairly long. And I was referring to that before. There's a whole lot that I'd like to read in here, but in the interest of time, we'll just go to Hebrews chapter 8. Um, verse 2. Verse 2. And it, this is referring to Jesus. And what does it call him? A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. Wow. So it it's literally speaks of a tabernacle that's not physical. It wasn't erected by people. The Lord created this tabernacle, and it's a reference to Jesus himself. And it goes on about the high priest and so forth. In chapter 9, it goes on and on about the, you know, Christ being the, the high priest of good things to come. Look at verse 11, 9, verse 11. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Mm. You know? So, Scripture is literally talking about some non-physical tabernacle and associating it with the Lord. So, we've seen the tabernacle associated with truth, with heaven. Now, it's associated with Jesus Himself. And look at uh, Revelation all the way to the right of your Bible. Chapter, we just got two verses here to look at. And then we'll talk about these fun things. 15, verse 5, John is having a vision up in heaven. And he uses an interesting phrase here. 15, At, verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Oh, it was. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the Old Testament you had a tabernacle or a temple. First of all, you had the tabernacle, then you had the temple. But here it's the temple and the Ten Commandments that were in it were called the testimony, as we heard before. Here it's the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Somehow this was opened. You know in the temple that that veil here, you know, was split in two from top to bottom when Jesus was uh, crucified at the moment of his death and, you know, so that people could have access all the way back to that most holy place. Mm. Very powerful image. Mm. And look at verse 8 down there. I just suddenly noticed that. What is that doing there? Look at that. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven <laughs> angels were completed. There you go again. Glory of God comes up. Oh, nobody can get in now. Uh, it, it's amazing. I didn't even know that was there. But... Let's go to Revelation 21. You may be familiar with this statement, which after you read a lot of tabernacle passages, just does that thing that Scripture does sometimes where it gains power. 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from oh, heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. We've got to read the first two verses in there too. I just think we've got to read them, right? Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And look at what he sees next. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I would argue that a bride adorned for her husband is a sort of connection type of issue. Isn't it like an image of sort of these two, the bride and the groom are going to come together, right? 
just as we've been talking about how does the divine and the human, how, how do those two things get together? Okay, and look at verse 3, what comes right after that. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And Swedenborg says such interesting things about this tabernacle because it's, you, I would really honestly think without Swedenborg's input that you had a tabernacle which was sort of a kind of a fallback plan, a portable temple because you're wandering in the wilderness and you're not really in a good location yet. So it's sort of like a make-do situation while you get through the wilderness until you can really build your real temple in Jerusalem and then have everybody come there and you've got the stone and the grandeur of it all. Uh, but Swedenborg says, no, the tabernacle was actually a, a, a more holy thing. The temple was sort of kind of just a little lower manifestation than that. The tabernacle is an image of love. Uh, the temple being of stone and is fixed and is just in one place is more of a truth kind of image. It's not the truth mm. is so bad but it just wasn't quite at that high level of the tabernacle. And so you get a sense of that here where it doesn't say the temple of God. There's lots of talk about temples in Revelation, but here it says it's the tabernacle that is with people. Hmm. And he will dwell with them. And you get that reciprocal sense again, don't you, friends? Mm -hmm. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. So it's this connection together of God with us. That's why I was talking about how you become an angel, the divine and the human, and also how within Jesus, the divine and the human come together. He was a tabernacle. So what on earth is that talking about? All right, all shall now be uh, revealed, right? <laughs> yes, this all shall become incredibly clear right now. Okay, well, uh, here are some thoughts I have about this right now. Um, See, I've often done the thought experiment. You may have heard me talk about this before. When you sort of think about why did Jesus come into this world, one way of answering it is that it was for our protection. Like I had this, when I was meditating on this at one point, I had this image in my mind of where you get those high-tension power lines that come down from Niagara Falls, and they've got you know 200,000 volts on them or whatever it is, and it's just so much power, but if you tried to plug your boom box into it, you know, it would blast it to kingdom come. Uh, so that's that huge power. Then that has to go to a transformer that steps it down to be something useful and tame and contained where you just want the amount of power you want, not too much, not too little. And so you, you need a transformer to get that down. If the divine itself had come into the world, it would have been like the sun itself coming on to imagine if the sun, the physical sun in the sky, decided to pay a visit to our earth. How would that go? Could the sun come down and start walking around like it might in a children's story on this earth? Well, no. The sun is much vaster than our earth. The earth would start to bubble and disappear. It would turn into vapor before the sun even got close. Just like you can't attach that boom box directly to a high power line coming down from Niagara Falls or something. Uh, you have to have a transformer that steps it down. Jesus was that transformer. 
the Father was that divine power coming through that high tension line. Jesus is like a transformer that can connect to that divine thing. That doesn't rip him apart because, he's, because he is divine. He is that in his soul. But the human part, he is the transformer between what is divine and what is human so it can be stepped down so that he can deal with hell without frying everybody, the good people included. Swedenborg points out that in the presence of God himself, not even Moses, who was like one of the best of people, could stand to be near him, you know? I mean, it, it was very challenging for him at first to, you know, he was very shaken up by being that close to God, let alone the worst of people. And yet the Lord wanted to come in this world and reach out and touch people of all different kinds, you know, just reach out to people wherever they were and do that safely without blowing them away. He wanted to deal with the hells and get them put back to bed where they belong, you know, and not kill them, not destroy them, but just you go over here. Here's a line. You're not allowed to cross this. You stay there. And, uh, and he could, he, if the divine as it is in itself had come down to do that, the hells just would have been cooked into non-existence. So he had to have a way of stepping down. You have a picture here, and it's such a complex picture in the tabernacle, in what scripture says about the tabernacle. But you have the divine itself. You have that God that was up on the mountaintop. And then God has Moses come up, who's human, very good human, but he goes up, he's called, and he comes up onto the mountain. And then God gives him the Ten Commandments. The first set of the Ten Commandments, as you may remember, and as I've alluded to twice already, were written on stone hewed by God with God's finger. Do you remember what happened to that set? Moses came down the mountain, saw people worshiping a golden calf after he was only absent for a couple of weeks. They've given up the whole game. He's angry. He smashes those Ten Commandments. And then he goes back up the mountain and Moses carves out a pair of tablets of stone. Not God this time, but Moses. And they're made to look like the first set that God had made. And then God writes on them in his finger. So isn't that an interesting picture of what is divine and what is human? How the second time it was the human being who supplied the stone, but God supplies the writing and what it says on there. And there are so many partnerships, so, so many things that represent a partnership in the, in the, in the uh, whole tabernacle. Where did this model come from? Well, it came from God and he showed it to him in heaven, right? God commanded it, but who built it? Did God just build it or did they just come around a corner in the wilderness and, oh, there's the thing. I guess that's a holy place that God made for us. No. Where did all the stuff come from? The people supplied it. They supplied all of it. Every board, every, every scrap of it came from the people. But in response to something the Lord said to do. And it came from them not like, oh, there's a compulsory thing. Everybody has to give it to you know, 10% of your income or something. No, it was just a free will offering. You, wanted, you got some gold? If you just got some scarlet thread or happen to have a badger skin <laughs> lying around, as we all do, friends, you know, you would bring that down there to contribute to the tabernacle so that that could be made in that tent. So did that come from God or was it from the people? Well, it was both. It was from God, but it was 100% from the people. And it was something that the people could build. And yet what happened at the end, the power of God came down and filled it so they couldn't even get in there. It was so full of the presence of God. And yet it had been this partnership that, that arrived at it. Um, 
part of what I see going on in here is uh, that if I had to represent this, I don't know how to represent this on my chart here, for those of you who are getting the visuals, you might have the divine power up above this chart, and then there's just sort of like radiating rays coming down from the divine. And uh, it's hard to fit New York City in a, in a business-sized envelope. You really need a bigger envelope from that. How, how are you going to get the divine? What does it say when Solomon's dedicating that temple in 1 Kings 8? The heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? You know, how are you going to get the divine into anything of our earth? And that may be sort of an academic question about the tabernacle. It's not an academic question about us, is it? If you want God in you, how are you going to do that? How's that going to work for you? How are you going to arrange that? How are you going to make a partnership with God? How, how do you do that? You've got this divine energy radiating down here, and that has come down and has, for, it's just too complex to describe, isn't it, friend? But it's come down and it's created these Ten Commandments, these simple rules, 180 Hebrew words. Just these, here you go, here are just some simple commands. They're written down on these tables of stone and they're put in that ark of gold in the most holy place. And God speaks, so that is now something of the divine that's down on this level. How did that happen? Well, in a nutshell, uh, the divine had to have something very willing, a person that was able to go up on the mountain and receive that and then take that down the mountain. So there was something human that was receiving that, but it was still a very divine thing, this divine text. And then that was placed in this human-made box after a divine pattern where you stick those commandments. And uh, so that is the most holy place, the, the, the highest uh, ecclesiastical official in the whole Old Testament system was only allowed in there once a year on pain of death, and then he had to fill it with all sorts of sacrifices and atonement and, and sprinkling of blood and so on uh, to get in there because that was the most sacred place. And you know, one guy touched the ark and he died when it was being carried from A to B. Uh, it, it, and the ark helped them in battles. It, the walls of Jericho fell down. You know, it was this very, very powerful thing, that ark. So that was behind a veil. Now, these things in the uh, <laughs> holy place. Help me, Jesus. It, it's not easy to try to describe what I'm trying to talk about here. But these things are... You see, one, one answer to how the divine and the, and the human come together is through correspondences and through vessels. Like it has, there has to be a vessel. So the, the ark was just, it was physical, you know, the Ten Commandments, physical stone, physical acacia wood, physical gold. You know, it was a physical thing, but it can contain something of God, that God had given and God designed. So that took it down to the next level where it's able to hold that. And then if you can see the table of showbread was the next level down. So you had a veil, then you've got a next level down here. And this table catches the love that's at that higher level in the form of that bread. And it catches that divine quality in the form of this light that's shining from these lampstands. It's sort of like 
I'm full of silly analogies tonight, and I apologize. Even even more than usual, isn't it? It's true. Um, but if um, like if you dropped a huge rock in a room that had a piano in it, what would the piano do? Wouldn't it resonate? Like you don't hit the piano with it, but you just drop it over here. Wouldn't it go? You know, especially if you had the loud pedal on. I used to actually this is a little piece of trivia, but I used to live in a house that had an old gutted piano in the garage right outside my room. Like my wall was the garage wall and there was a piano there that had no guts, nothing to dampen the strings. It was just strings on a, on a board. So every time you shut that garage door, every, every string would just, you know, resonate and everything. So my whole, you know, that's, it partly explains my condition, doesn't it, friend? That, that, um, well, it resonated, you know, like the, the garage door didn't touch that piano, but it resonated. It responded, right? How does the divine touch something human? Well, there's something on that next level down that responds to it, that, that can receive that. And it, it sort of gets excited by it. They, they don't actually touch each other because they can't in a way, uh, but it, it, it vibrates in resonance to that, to that divine thing that's there. And then this thing resonates down here. This is another level down. And the bread and the light on the lampstand is like, you know, because this, this humming thing is inside there, not literally, but you know, this divine thing is inside there. And that resonates on the next level with this bread and with this light. It's how these, this divine thing comes down by state, discrete stages, but they respond, and they're vessels. That table is a picture of a vessel. A table is something that you put stuff on, you know what I mean? That's what it, it's, it's a table that is able to receive something of this on that next level down. It's a vessel. And these are all vessels, too, that hold that oil, and they burn the oil so that you've got that light going on. So it holds it down on the next level. That comes down to the next level in these sacrifices and these washings and so on. Then all the children of Israel are arrayed around this thing. Okay. Um, now, another thing that really needs to be said about this, and I know we're running out of time here, friends, but um, you can kind of see what's in it for us in a partnership with God. It's not too tough a sell. Be connected with God. You know, it's good, right? And that the Lord will then come down and will give you principles to live by. This is sort of the inmost of the word. Another thing that Swedenborg said, this whole thing means is the word. This is a picture of the word. Like we see the outside of the word out here. But inside the word, there are holier and holier things going all the way back. This is the picture of the compassion and the light of truth, of insight in here. And then even within that, there, there's something so holy in this covenant of the Lord making a covenant with us and everything. That's at the heart of the whole thing. Um, you can see. So that's great. Yeah, we'd have compassion. We have the truth of insight. That's good. What is in it for God? Whew. Yeah, well, wow, I'd really like to make a partnership with that dirt bag over there, you know. What is in it for God? It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And yet the Lord wants to make a partnership with us. 
He wants to create. He wants us to build. In a way, we don't, like who builds it? Do we build it? We sort of build it, but we build it according to his model. So we read the word and we say, oh, okay, I'm supposed to repent. That's the labor. Wash the hands, wash the feet and all that stuff. The sacrifices, like the good things that you do, say that came from God, you know. Offer that back to the Lord, the good things that you do. And then the evil is cast outside the camp. You throw, you throw the excrement and stuff out there, you know, to get rid of the junk. The Lord is just all ready to create this pattern in us and wants to create it so that he can come down. And this is a perfect picture of what, what was human in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. How did the human part of God connect with the divine part? It was this complicated coupling of something divine and something human responds. And this is just one picture, meaning the tabernacle, but within the tabernacle as well, there's the fact that the Lord dictates how we do it and then we do it. We supply the materials, but He supplies the glory. He fills it with His presence. You know, you make the ark, put in it the testimony that I give you, says the Lord. There's, there, it's a process. It's not just a place. It's not just a thing. It's a series of processes. There's a process of how it gets built. There's a process of how it gets set up, process of how it gets torn down. And there's a process of all the rituals that are supposed to take place in here. So it's, it's not just a place. How we form a relationship with God is a process. And it's a complex process. And um, we, God comes down, God is coming down in this, he, he's coming down from the top in this picture. He's up on the top of the mountain. He's divine. It's all glorious. But he comes down into the most holy place. And then from there, that presence goes into the next level. And then from there, it spreads out to here. From there, it spreads out to all the people who are gathered around. It comes down, down, down like that. But our part is we go up. So we're going up. Swedenborg says that if we could really see what the sacraments are, a baptism and the Holy Supper, we would realize that they are a tabernacle, he says. They're a tabernacle. And if you keep pursuing those things, eventually they will open the most holy place to you. We go this way. We, we go inward. And we get into that holiest place. <coughs> where something of God is coming right down into something. So when Jesus, the picture of the veil being torn, was when he completed his process of life in this world, he had done this whole thing, and everything was at this level, like he was entirely at that. It wasn't sort of, well, there's, and then there's this here and there's that. No, the whole thing was at that, at that holiest level. We... Don't get to that same place. But one more thing I've got to say about this is that Swedenborg also says it's a picture of heaven. And really, this is the heavenly heaven. This is the, this is the highest heaven where the celestial angels, the sweetie pies, all the little babies who die and stuff, they all receive the Lord. And the Lord is so present in there. And the ark means the heaven, but the testimony is the Lord right inside them, right inside that heaven. And this picture of the tabernacle came from heaven. Heaven was who received that, like, hey, yeah, we'll build something that looks just like how you connect with us, you know? And uh, then this is the next heaven down from it, the more truthy heaven, you know, where, where everything, uh, so they have compassion. 
but it's all gold, isn't it? Gold, gold, gold. Gold, gold, gold. It's all about love. So it's love and good actions. Gold is good actions. The good things that you do for others, that's what sheds light in your mind. That's what creates compassion in your heart and everything. And then out here is like the lowest heaven where you have this altar that sacrifices all the good things you do and you have this labor where you wash the repentance, you wash what your, what, what your hands are doing, you wash what your, where your feet are going. And uh, so this is an image of, of a process. So it's about how the Lord connects uh, with us. So it's not a complete answer. It's not a very good answer. Uh, uh, but can you begin to see that coupling that it's like this and then this and then that connects with this and then you bring this in and that has this and that connects in this way and then that reflects on the next level down where this too is like this and then everything gets arranged around it and all the junk gets pushed to the side. And this is something the Lord wants to do to us. But it starts, where does it start? It's a free will offering. Just, it just starts with, if you want, just bring me some stuff. What do those things mean? But in, in short form, they're just truths in your mind. They're good actions that you're doing. You know, just bring me some gold, bring me some silver, some, some scarlet thread, whatever you got lying around. You know, uh, let me show you a map of what to do with those things. And the Lord will arrange all the stuff. He knows all the 12 tribes. He knows how to arrange it all. He'll, he'll make that order out of us. And the astounding thing is that this thing goes with you wherever you go. It's not in Jerusalem. It's anywhere. Back half of the desert, wherever you are, you can set this thing up and boom, the Lord is there and can speak to you from there. So I don't know if I really scratched the surface of this thing, good friends, but we'll quit there for this evening. And, um, but that's something that some thought about how the divine and the human come together, how the divine comes together with us and turns us into angels. And this is why the tabernacle is so important. So please, friends, don't cut out your Old Testament. Don't throw it out just yet. It's got good information in there about how to be an angel. Thank you, friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down. Thank you for showing us this model. There's such beauty in it. And yet to all eternity will we fully understand it. There is so much depth in it and so much detail. We thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to who you are, what you are doing in this world. And above all, the most astounding, inexplicable love that you have for us. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. Someday the presence of God must be maybe so strong with us that we have to leave. It's just nothing but God. Thank you, friends.